God. Alright. So we continue in 1 Samuel, seeking a king. And uh, we're getting to a point in, in the narrative in 1 Samuel where uh, the people of God are going to encounter uh, s- some difficult times. And so uh, if I was to ask everyone here, when was the last time you just faced something hard and difficult? Uh, I imagine all of you would, would be able to name something, right? I mean, I'd say raise your hand if you can't remember the last time you went through a difficult time. I don't think anybody would raise their hand. You, you remember something. Now, granted, depending on who you are and the stage of life that you're in, uh, whatever that time may have been, it's, compared to someone else's, it's, it's going to be different. It may seem more or less difficult to you or to someone else. You know, there's some subjectivity to it. But I think we would all agree that difficulties are just prevalent. They're part of our lives. You can remember them. You can remember the last time you... Face something difficult, you might be in the midst of something right now that you consider difficult. And so the title of this morning's message is not if difficulties come, but when they do, when difficulties come. And our text is 1 Samuel beginning, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you want to turn there and be ready to read it in just a moment. Uh, you know what I hope? I, I hope for you... That your faith in God and and your faith that as far as you understand it in Christ, uh, at the very least, is something that that can help you deal with difficult times. I I hope that at the very least it is that. But really what we what what a biblical faith is, is not just something that that helps you deal with something that's difficult and makes you feel better when things are bad. It's something that points you to something else in the midst of that difficulty. It's something that points you to something that is bigger than that difficulty. And not only helps you deal with the difficulty, but, but to push through it with your eyes on, on God and God's ultimate plan and God's ultimate purpose. Not just for you, but, but for our whole world. That's, that's ultimately what faith is supposed to do. There's a little example that, that Tim Keller gives, and I really like it. And he says, just suppose you take two people... And, and uh, they're the very same kind of person, same gender, same you know, disposition, same sort of personality. And, and, and you give both of them a job. You put them you know, as, as people on this assembly line. and Just this generic assembly line. And you say your job is to take part A and connect it to part B and to pass it on. And, and, and you, you'd say that's your job. That's what you're going to do all day. And, and you put them in this, this room, and it, it, both people, they're in the same kind of room, and they're doing the same thing, and, and, and they have the same sort of personality. But he says, you tell one person, at the end of the year, we'll pay you $30,000 to do this job. You tell the other person, at the end of the year, we're going to pay you $30 million. Is there going to be a difference in the way that they carry out that job? Very, very... Assuredly, right? The, the person that, that might get 30000 at the end, they'll, they'll probably start off okay, but, but they might complain about their job. They might say that it's boring. They might wish that uh, it was something else. They might struggle to find a sense of purpose in what they're doing. The person that's going to get $30 million? Well, man, even if that purpose is only to get to the end of it and get that $30 million and do something, that's a pretty good purpose, isn't it? And so he says the point of that illustration isn't to say, 
well, it's all about money. Or it's all about having a good job. But he says, what we know about the future, how we understand the future, certainly impacts our present. It, 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 it influences uh, certainly what, what we're going through and how we go about what we're going through. And so, uh, you know, I'm certain all of you could tell me stories about, you know, what you're going through. But, but I also hope that you're looking at something outside of that. Michelle's sister recently had a, a little boy. And we went to visit him in the hospital. And he was born about a month premature. And so he had a few complications. Not very, very serious, you know, in the scheme of things. But he did have some complications. And he was in the hospital a little longer than most babies. And he actually had to go back to the hospital after he was released. And uh, I just remember going to the hospital and seeing him and, and, and watching uh, both Michelle's sister and her husband. And, and you know, you, you don't do that kind of thing without your memories flashing back to, to the moments when your children were, were babies and infants. And, and all those moments that, that you spent, the sleepless nights and, and, and the, the feeding every three hours and, and, and wearing the shirts with spit up on it for what seemed like days sometimes. And so your mind goes back to all that. And, and as I watched them go through it, and, 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 and you know that you went through it, but you still wonder, like, well, golly, how do they do it? <laughs> you know, and you know you did it, but but it's it, it, when you're looking back on it, you think, man, uh, especially in the midst of being in the hospital and going through some of those difficulties, how did they do it? And, and I'm sure you could probably remember the stories if, if you had children and you and you went through it and you know that you did, but you look back on it and think, man, that was that was hard. And so that's how difficulties are. In the midst of them, we, we have to be looking at something outside of it. When, when, when it has to do with kids, we know, especially as with infants, our hope is that they do have a life, that they're going to grow, and things aren't always going to be like that. And we're looking at, at the outside of that and who they could be. And so for Israel, a difficult time would come. And it would come when, when what, uh, what we know is the Ark of the Covenant. I want to show you a picture of that. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant in our... <laughs> I don't know if that's a picture. That's a representation of it. Moses took that with his smartphone. No. Uh, but when the Ark of the Covenant was, was, was stolen. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant was, looked maybe something like that. It was, it was a golden. It was, a wood, it was wooden, but it had gold, it was surround, it had gold plated, I guess you could say. And, and it had uh, the Ten Commandments and, and some other uh, important things to God's people. And, and for them, it's sort of... It embodied, in a sense, and it symbolized God's presence in their midst. And so a group of people called the Philistines would become, we'll find out in 1 Samuel, become their arch enemies. And, and they come and they capture this. And, and that's just sort of the beginning of this difficult time for them. If you look at 1 and 2 Samuel and you, and you survey both the books, uh, the Philistines are mentioned almost 150 times. So this wasn't a difficulty for them that's, that's sort of here today and gone tomorrow. It's a difficulty that they're going to deal with for, for a long time. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel and, and see when this difficulty meets them, what it is that they're looking at, or if they're looking at something beyond them that's going to get them through it. So 1 Samuel chapter 4 is your text, and I invite you to turn there if you haven't. We'll read that. It'll be on your screen. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, 
Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. They said, Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. I actually begin reading that text in chapter 4, verse the second part of verse 1. Uh, and, and that's because that's the beginning sort of of this story. But, but the, the very first part of verse 1 I think is important because it connects it to what we read last week. It says, And Samuel's words came to all Israel. And you remember what the words of Samuel were, right? That Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, would, would die. And it was because of the way they were profaning the sacrifices in the house of God. And so it says, and his words came to all Israel. That's a literal thing. Like the words actually came. It actually happened. And so when we're reading that, we're actually reading two sides. We're reading a very difficult thing. But on the other hand, we're reading these words of a prophet that God has spoken through. Evidence that God is, is doing something. This, this boy Samuel that was dropped off at the, t- at the house of God by his, his mother. God is there. He's in the midst. He's doing something. And the evidence of that is that what he said would happen, happened. But it's a very difficult thing that happened. And so uh, the difficult part is to try and look at what God is doing in the midst of the difficulty. That, that has to be our focus. Because the truth is, in, in this passage and for us, when we're going through the midst of difficulties. Often, probably, probably most often, we we might not, we probably won't know why. That was that was true for, for the Israelites. They they should have known why, really, but, but they didn't know why. And for us, often we we don't know why when we go through those difficult times. But isn't that sort of the default question when something bad happens? Why? God, why are you letting this happen to me? You know, it's almost a cliche. Why? We ask that. This past year, Emily played soccer for the first time. And uh, you ever watch, it was ages four through six. You ever watch four through six-year-olds play soccer? It's kind of like, you ever, you ever throw a piece of bread up to a seagull and, and, and all the seagulls flock to it, you know? And then one of them gets it. <laughs> That's how about every play was. All the little kids would go and they'd attack the ball and they'd kick it, you know, because they don't, they're not at the age where they understand strategic positioning on the field and 
you know, how if I go stand down here, that the ball's going to eventually get there, and I might could get it easier. If I, they don't get any of that. Really, they're, most of them are kind of afraid of the ball. And so it's just a victory first if you get them to go to the ball. And so they would do that. And then, and then by the end of the year, if your kid actually learns how to emerge from the flock and, and kind of get the ball down the field, well, that, that's good. Your, kid, your kids learned something, and, and that's what the coach said. If, if they learn how to kick the ball successfully down the field, whether it gets in the net or not, we had a good year. And so that's what it looked like. And that happened like 40 times a game, you know, and, and, and a little kid would get the ball and they'd go down the field. And, and what would happen, because they haven't mastered the skills of turning the ball, if they hadn't lined up exactly with the net, they would just keep going. <laughs> they'd go right out of bounds. And they'd go from one side of the field to the other. And that happened over and over and over. But then what I started noticing happen as, as the year went on, the kids would learn that, okay, if I, if I start off straight, if I get lined up with the net perfectly, then there's a bigger chance that I'll get it in the net when I get to the end of the field. And, and so you didn't notice it when you were in the midst of it. When, when the kids were fighting over the ball and it was going out of bounds, you didn't really notice them learning anything. But, but when you compare the very last game, when the kids are actually knowing, okay, there's the net. That's where I should be kicking it, even though I just kicked it out of bounds. You, you see that progression. And you see that something's happening. You see that, that something's going on. Even when you were in the midst of it, you didn't understand it and you didn't see it happening. And I'd like to tell you that every... Difficult thing you go through, you're going to get to the end of it, and you're going to look back and you say, oh, I see what it was all for. I get it now. But often you're not. Sometimes you might, and sometimes in biblical passages we see that, but, but often we don't. Often those difficult times just feel like that soccer game, and it's, you don't know why it's happening, and it's chaotic, and you look back on it, and it was just a big mess. And when we look at what is really happening to the Israelites when they are initially defeated in this passage by the Philistines, that, that first battle where they lose 4,000 soldiers, really I'm not too sure, even though we'll find out why, but I'm not too sure that God is concerned with them knowing why. That's the question though, isn't it? And, and they ask that question. Why, why, why did God allow that to happen to us? And they make this assumption that this happened because they didn't have that picture that I showed you. They didn't have that Ark of the Covenant at the battle. And probably their minds are going back to the battle of Jericho where, where, where the elders of Israel would hold that thing up and they would bring it into battle. And it was the sign of God's presence and, and they were victorious. And, and so they make this assumption, well, it, did, it didn't happen because we didn't have our, our magical good luck charm. And, and so we need that, Right. I like in, in verse 3, it's, it's almost, they ask that question, but they ask it in sort of a rhetorical manner. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? That's the question. Well, let us, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of the enemies. Clear, clearly, they decided why, right? Whether anyone had told them or not, that's what they decided. And, and spoiler alert, they were wrong. It wasn't. That they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. That's not why they were defeated. And they made this assumption that they knew why that bad thing had happened. And then they based their actions on it. And it's going to cause more bad things for them. So God doesn't promise a why to all the bad things that happen. And, and, and that's the question sometimes. And some, sometimes we try and do stuff to sort of figure that out. Uh, but I think when we look at this passage, that's one thing that we learn is that sometimes you just don't know why. And in the 90s, I remember there was this bus crash in England, and, and they interviewed a, a, a priest, 
And, and they ask, now that's always the question, why would you think, because he was, you know, sort of the religious authority, why do you think God would allow this horrible thing to happen? And, and he gives this answer that went something like, well, we, we can't really know, but you know, the fact that we see this as being wrong, well, that's, that's proof of God. The fact that we know that there's good and there's bad, and that, that, that's proof of God. And, uh, that's an okay answer, but then there are atheists like Richard Dawkins that'll say things like, well, when you look at our world and you see all the bad stuff that happens, well, I think that's proof that God doesn't exist because our world is chaotic and that just supports the, the hypothesis that there is no God and he's just letting bad things happen. And as Christians, when we come to the Bible, we have to take it and we say, you know, it's, it's not a logical thing where we say uh, we know God is, is evident because this happened here, this didn't happen there. Or God is not there because this didn't happen or this didn't happen. When we look at the Bible, we see that, that sometimes bad things happen and there's not an explanation. That's part of living in a sinful world. And if we get too caught up on, on the why, we miss out on knowing, on God, on knowing God himself. We, we might not always know the why, but we do, as believers, have this, this faith that we know the God that created the world, that created time. Even in the midst of difficult times. There's a story about uh, President Truman. And, and he, was, he had this concern that he was going to be too important for regular people to sort of relate with. And so uh, he, he had this, this tradition of trying to take walks out among common and, and regular people. And, and the president then could do that a, a lot easier than he could today. He'd still bring a little bit of security with him. But you know, he'd walk among common people. And there's a story one evening about him wanting to, to take a walk down to the Memorial Bridge on the Potomac. And it was one of those old bridges that, you know, some of these still exist that have to move up. You know, you have a guy that, that pushes a button and, and the, the, the bridge goes up for big ships to go through it. And he said he wanted to go and, 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 and look at the mechanism that causes the bridge to do that. And, and so as he did, he, he met the bridge operator. And, and he was just this common guy. Uh, in fact, he was, he was eating his lunch from a bucket. And as he's eating his lunch, he, meets, he looks up and he sees the president. And, and, and according to, to Truman's biographer, he looks at the president and he says, President Truman, I was just thinking about you. And, and according to his biographer, that was, that was something that the president always remembered. And he loved that remark. There was just this, this simple, everyday guy. And he just was just kind of thinking about the president. Often we think about God when we want something or when something is, is not like we want it. We want Him to do something. I think God loves the idea that sometimes we just think about Him because He's, he's God. And it's in Him and through Him and because of Him that we can, can, in the midst of whatever we're in, we can look outside of that and say, gosh, I know the God that created the world even in the midst of what I'm in. And that is what is not only going to get me through it, but keep me faithful to him in the midst of it. Not because everything happens for a reason, but because everything that does happen, God can use for a reason. As, as scripture says, all things work together for good. And so even in Israel's misunderstanding, even in their assumption that, that, that they lose this battle because of this ark, God, God is doing something. And, and, and as the ark is retrieved, and it's brought out to the battlefield. Verse 5 tells us the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp. And all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. They understood something about God, clearly. 
even in the midst of their misunderstanding. And when the Philistines experienced that, of course, the Philistines said, hey, this is the God that, or they called them the gods because that was the culture they lived in. That's how they understood God as being more than one. They, these are the gods that, that, that did all the bad stuff to the Egyptians. That's, that's how they understood God. And, and it gives us a glimpse into how Israel understood God as well. They understood God because of what he had done on their behalf. And, and, and it, it's, it scares them, right? And so Israel has this knowledge of God. And they wrongly used it to predict the future actions of what their God might do based on what he had done. And, and, and to be fair, that's kind of what the pagan and the Canaanite gods were like. Whether they demanded worship of idols or whether they demanded sacrifice or, or whatever it was. If, if you did what they wanted to do, kind of like a slot machine, you do your stuff and then they'll do their stuff. That was the way they worked. It wasn't about a relationship. It was just about this mechanical transaction. And, and, and that's what Israel wants their God to be. He, he, he delivered us this last time. Last time it worked when we brought the Ark of the Covenant. So, so it's going to work this time, right? And they were confused. They were they knew God. They knew God. They knew what he did, but they didn't necessarily know what he was going to do. And when they confused that, they missed out on the fact that what was happening wasn't because of something that they did or they didn't do. But it was because of something else. It was, it was because of Eli's sons. And, and, and they really already been told that was going to happen. And so we read in verse 4 that the people sent men to Shiloh and brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty. He was enthroned between the cherubim. And this was the ultimate uh, outcome. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now that's the problem. These two fraudulent priests are there. As long as they are present, there's going to be problems. There's going to be problems with God's people. And they're simply sort of experiencing the working out of what verse 1 said that we didn't read earlier. Of what Samuel said, Samuel's word came to all the people. They're experiencing the outworkings of that. And the first time I remember sort of meeting, meeting someone that, that was hoping God would do something and ended up doing something else, I, was, I, was, I guess it was my very first hospital visit. I, uh, I, I took this class in seminary that made us go and, and make visits at the old Hillcrest Hospital. This was before it became Scott and White, Baylor, Hillcrest. It was just Hillcrest Hospital. And it was the old building. And uh, the, the very first hospital visit, I don't know how they assigned a, a first-year seminary student to this. This had to be an oversight. But they assigned me to the, the floor with cancer patients. And uh, I remember walking into this room of this, uh, he, was, he was in his late 70s-year-old man who was at the, the end of, of stages of, of fatal cancer. And, and there were three or four people huddled around his bed. And when I walk into the room, they go and they grab me and they pulled, almost pulled me in. And they said, I introduced myself as a, as a student chaplain, because that's what I was supposed to say, even though I didn't feel really confident or competent to say that. And they said, well, we want you to pray in agreement with us that this man is going to be healed. And I looked at the man, and, and one of the things that, that a very wise mentor of mine said, before you pray anything for anyone, ask what they want you to pray. And so I asked this man, what, what would you like for me to pray? And, and all he could do in response to what those standing around him had said was shake his head no. Hmm. 
when we assume that we can know the why behind every difficulty, we miss out on knowing the God that gets us through those difficulties, that, that helps us sometimes admit tough truths in the midst of those difficulties. And so here's the final truth we need to accept, is that knowing God, knowing God, as the Bible says that we can, might not change what we experience. It might not. We still might have to go through all of it. It can get us through it, but it might not change it. And at this point, you're probably thinking, well, Matt, you sure wouldn't make a very good motivational speaker. <laughs> and, and you know what? I admit, I'm not a motivational speaker. I, can I, take a, I want to take a step back and just kind of share with you as a pastor some of the struggles I have, some of the tensions I experience when I preach. Okay, These are my convictions when I preach a sermon, especially when it comes from a passage like this. Is that first of all, I want to preach to you a sermon that, that you get the main idea of. You know, I didn't do notes today, and, and that's okay, because I feel like the main idea of this one's pretty pretty obvious. But whether you get the individual points is not as big of a deal as, as you walk away and you think, okay, I get the big idea of what, what he was saying and what that passage of scripture was about. But the second thing when, when I'm when I'm preaching and not motivational speaking, is that I don't want to say something. That the Bible does not say. I don't want to say anything more or anything less than what this says. And so do you see how sometimes that can create a, a tension for me? And, and, and do you see how sometimes, sometimes it, it, can, it can be almost like, well, I've heard this before. Because if you've read the Bible, I really hope as a pastor, as I'm preaching to you from a passage of Scripture, you'd say, yeah, I kind of got that before. Because maybe you know that Bible story yourself. And maybe you hadn't thought about just how I applied it or how I spend it or something, and, and that's okay. But, but I hope that, that there's nothing that I preach from the Bible and you say, man, I just never, I never heard of that. Because it either means that you, didn't, you hadn't read that passage or it means, it, it might mean that, that I'm off track. And I'm not really preaching from the Bible. Maybe I'm saying something that, that really the Bible doesn't give me permission to say. And so that's how I approach these things. That's how I approach this passage. And so just because we know something, just because we know something like, like we read in this passage about God, about our world, doesn't mean that God can't use it and we don't need to hear it and that God can't apply it to our lives and God can't encourage us from it and God can't convict us from it sometimes. Because I don't think preaching ever was about motivation or, or making us feel better or... or just something that we needed to hear to get through the day. But I think it's always been about something that's, that's, that's shaped by God, that's used by God to point us to His truth and what He wants for our lives. And so for Israel, they invoke God by bringing the ark into, into the battle with these two crooked priests. And they need to hear the truth. They need to hear the truth that nothing they're going to do is going to make this better. In fact, what they're doing makes things worse. In verse 10 we read, The Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The word slaughter here, Hebrew, is the same word that's used for the plagues that are un unleashed on the Egyptians. It's almost as if the Bible is saying what God had allowed to happen to Israel's enemies. Now he is saying because they presume and try to, to cheapen this Ark of the Covenant and use it as, as a good luck charm instead of a reminder of my presence, now I'm going to allow to happen to them what I allowed to happen to their enemies. 
And so we read in, in verse 11, the ark of God was captured and Hophni and Phinehas died. And we knew that was going to happen, right? Samuel said that was going to happen. He, he foretold that. That was, that was part of it. But I have to wonder how much, how much less bloodshed would there have been if Israel would have stepped back and said, maybe it's not about me trying to do or, or, or assume what God wants. Maybe it's just about me looking to God in the midst of this difficult time. How much less bloodshed would have there been? How many more lives might not have been lost? And in the, the circles that I ran with not long after I became a Christian, we would talk about, and I believe in this, by the way, it's just another message. We would talk about the power of prayer. And, and, and I believe that, power, that, that prayer is, is powerful and it, and it actually influences God. But we would use this acronym, PUSH. You ever heard that? Pray until something happens. And, and, and we, would, we would use that as, as, a way, as a way to pray. But here, I look at the Israelites and, and they seem to push something on God that God didn't desire, that God didn't mandate. And they have some pretty negative consequences. And so maybe, maybe pray until something happens isn't always the best advice. Maybe if, we pray, or if we're praying for something and we're praying and we're praying and we're praying and nothing's happening, maybe it might, it might benefit us to take a step back and say, is this even something that God desires? It's something that I want, but is this something that God wants? It, it may be. I'm not saying that it, that means that it's not, but, but it may not be. Knowing God's not about our agenda. You ever have one of those friends who you feel like they're your friend when as long as there's not anyone else that's important in the room, they, they have their attention on you? You know anybody that's like that? And they, they shake your hand, they'll talk to you, but in the minute someone else important walks in the room, it's that's, that's who they turn to. It, it, as long as there's not someone that can do something for them or, or help them do something else or, or someone that's just, you know, maybe more popular or more prominent, well, then they'll talk to you. As long as there's not something else more pressing. Probably, I use the word friend, you don't look at them as being much of a friend. Yeah, that's the way we treat God sometimes. I had Emily tell me, one time, my parents, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I had her tell me, I wish my grandpa was my dad. Any, any of you ever get that? I wish my grandpa was my dad. Well, it just so happened that she told me that after her grandpa had come in from out of town and took her somewhere and gave her a bunch of sugar and brought, bought her a present, you know. And Well, yeah, I, I bet you do wish that, you know. Especially grandparents that aren't always around all the time. When they live far away, that they come in and, and, you know, they don't want to. And I don't blame them. They don't have to be the disciplinarian. That's not really their job. That's not their role. And some of you grandparents are saying, that's right. I did, I did my time. I'm finished. <laughs> but I remember, I remember her saying that and thinking, and thinking, you know, that, that's what you wish. But it's not really about what you wish, isn't it? Being a parent is not about what the kid wants. And it takes the kid learning and growing and maturing to grasp that. And it takes us as believers sometimes some growing and maturing to recognize that, you know, having a relationship with God isn't always about us. It's not always about what we want. N.T. Wright once was asked, when he's, when he's on his deathbed, what is one message he wants to convey to his children. And I loved what he said. He said, I would tell them to look at Jesus. He said, if you, I would tell them, if you want to know who God is, 
Look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know, <clears throat> if you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. And go on looking, he says, until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character. Because when Jesus is central, then all the other stuff, we sing that hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When He is central, then what we want, even in the midst of the most difficult times, is not the most important thing. And all of a sudden, it's not about, it's not about why or, or, or what we want Him to do. But instead, it's about how we can be faithful. And how we can bring Him glory in the midst of whatever it is that we are facing. And I pray we'd be able to do that together. Just pray with me. Lord, it is, it is difficult sometimes when we, are, when we just can't see beyond the what or the why or the how. And God, it is in those times sometimes that, that we grow dangerously close to just thinking that it is about us. It's about what we feel and it's about uh, making our life great. And God, I pray that, that you would refocus our attention this morning in the midst of whatever... Whatever situation each person here might find themselves in. God, help us to ask that question. How can we give you glory? How can we be obedient to you? How, how can we serve you? And God, we do pray that you would draw near to us. That we would experience your presence. And, and God, ultimately, that you would, you would hear our prayers. And that you would respond as you see fit. In a way that, that fits your plan and your purpose for our world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.